Hey, uh, this, this week uh, coming up for my family is a, is a big week for us. We have a, a birthday we're going to be celebrating. Uh, my wife has a, has a milestone birthday this week, and we're excited to celebrate, celebrate that with her on Thursday. Uh, but on Tuesday, she and I celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary, so we're really excited about that. Praise the Lord. If you ever doubted the supernatural or the miraculous, well, there you have it. I've proven that with God, all things are possible. Um, she has stayed married with me for this long, and that's a, a cause for celebration. Uh, anniversaries tend to be momentous occasions, don't they? But oftentimes they can be for different reasons. You have some anniversaries are causes for celebration. Others are times of sorrow, perhaps, or mourning. Um, others can be times to reflect or even to assess things, to kind of examine kind of where you are or where uh, the world is. Um, back in March of this year, Christianity Today published an article uh, commemorating the two-year anniversary of, of covid and it was entitled, Americans Return to Church Has Plateaued. So the, the title there gives sort of an, an ominous feel of what the article was about. Now, I'm not the fan of Christianity today that I, that I once was. There's some things going on there that I, that I haven't been too pleased with. I don't uh, regularly read that publication or, or resource them. But in this particular article, um, they're highlighting the, the trouble that we see in the statistics conducted uh, or, or discovered in a, a Pew Research Center uh, study that indicates that the trend of people that were returning back to church after sort of the, the COVID, you know, craze hit the world and then began to decline, that, that steady upward tick in 2001 uh, reached a point in September where two-thirds of people who claimed to go to church, you know, at least once a month, had returned to church, but that number, that two-thirds number, has held from that time all the way until March. And so what felt like this sort of exciting sort of return to the, the, the pre-COVID world in terms of engagement and participation and attendance in our churches hit a mark that we have yet to really overcome since then. We've been kind of holding steady, and, and you can see it. Even here this morning, as I stand up here and look across the room, it's it's a little different than it was a couple of years ago. Uh, you feel it when you, when you go to events and activities and you watch things perhaps online. You, th something is different. Um, the, the article says, says this, going in now into the third year since COVID, congregations and their leaders are left with the reality that the people who worshiped alongside them before may not be coming back. It's a very sobering thought that the people that, that once sat to your left and to your right just a couple short years ago um, that you haven't seen in a while. Maybe there's legitimate reasons for that. We're not here to judge or to, to criticize or point fingers. We're just trying to, to grapple with the reality as things are. Some of those people, uh, for, for other reasons, maybe good, maybe bad, may never come back. It appears that, at least to some extent, the pandemic has changed the way people relate to church. Colin Hansen, the editor-in-chief for the Gospel Coalition, writes this, we have to retrain people from the beginning on why you should bother to assemble at all. Now, I recognize that I'm preaching to the people who are here. There's people online. We're glad you're there. Um, but we, we all need to be thinking along, along these lines and be thinking about these things. What does it mean and what are we to do in the, in the midst of, of the world that we're in as it is? We have to retrain people from the beginning on why you should bother to assemble. I think pastors take that for granted and are going to be surprised how many people never had that vision to begin with and never come back when the all clear is given. I'll be honest, I've been kind of surprised. I, you know, we, we had the, the first sort of wave where we, we canceled church and everyone was staying at home and that was the right decision to make and we put into high gear, you know, getting a live stream, a quality live stream, you know, operation underway. And we've got really gifted, committed people who operate that week in and week out. You never see their faces. They never get to be in here with you because they're serving up in a, in a booth, isolated from everybody else. Um, and, and, and then we, in that first Pentecost Sunday in 2020, we had our, our parking lot service, which where we broadcast on the radio and everyone got to sit in their cars and listen to the service. And we, we, we did the service from the back of a flatbed trailer. It was just so unique and different. It was, it was kind of exciting because we were, we were adapting with the times and we were, you know, facing, facing our fears head on and doing everything we could to continue to meet. 
And then we had that season where we, we opened the doors back up and people started coming, but you were in little clusters all around the worship center. You remember the little groupings of chairs, and we tried to keep them all, you know, six feet apart from each other and doing our best to, to do whatever we could to, to play it safe. And we had masks available and signs encouraging you to wear masks, and people were getting shots and boosters, and, and, and we went through all that. But then last summer came along, and there was this momentum. We felt sort of like we're, we're coming back, and then that nasty Delta variant hit, and it hit my family and put us down for the count, and, and suddenly everyone's kind of spooked again by, by what's going on, and, and here we are, two and a half, almost two and a half years later, and, and it's great, we're here together on Sundays, but it's, it's different, and I'm not saying it's all bad different or it's all good different, but it is different, and as I think about where we are and where we're going and, and what the future looks like, I think there's wisdom in what Colin Hansen is saying here. He's saying we have to, as a people, sometimes you have to stop and reflect and assess and go back to basics and ask the, the basic questions. Well, why are we assembling to begin with? What's the point? What, what is the urgency of church at all? And maybe we need to stop and think about these things once more. And so it is with these things in mind that I put this sermon series together called We Over Me, and that's Pastor Jeff's creative title, so I'm not going to claim credit for it. If you, if you love it, um, let him know. If you hate it, well, you can let him know that too if you want. But <laughs> we, we Over Me. Um, I had been working on actually a couple of different sermon series for the last several months, and I had one lined up and ready to go, almost completely ready to go, and I'd been thinking and compiling just ideas and, and, and diving into scripture, and it was, it was coming together. And then um, I believe it was Wednesday afternoon at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I, ha I went to Jeff's office and I said, Jeff, I'm having an existential crisis here because I don't, I don't feel peace about where I was planning to go. And so um, we, we flipped the script, uh, or I should say the Holy Spirit flipped the script, and we, we felt compelled to, to tackle this issue of, of you know, what, what do we view the church to be? What is the church? What is our part in the church? Why, what does it mean to belong to a church? What is our role? Why are we here? So whether you're a first-timer here with us today, a visitor, or someone who's been going here your whole life, if you are a Christian, a believer, then I, I hope this challenges you to reassess your view of church. And so to kick us off, we're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. You can turn there now. Ephesians is uh, my go-to book for uh, any time I'm grappling with issues pertaining to ecclesiology or the, the, the theology of the church. Um, Paul just brilliantly lays out this beautiful vision of what the church is and what it's all about. And, and so I felt compelled to come back here. We're going to be in chapter 3, and I'm going to read a, a good chunk of that passage there. Um, but it's, it's helpful to note that the passage I'm going to be reading is, is sort of an aside for Paul. As he's writing this letter, you know, he's got this, this flow of thought in chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. And in chapter 3, in the first verse, he, he continues this flow of thought, but then he takes what we'll call a, a Holy Spirit-filled, you know, tangent and sort of breaks off his, his thought for just about 12 verses and shares some other thoughts that, that maybe the people he was writing to weren't aware of. And he wants to make sure they have that data, that background information, before he returns to his thought in verse 14. So I, what I want to do is I want to camp out in his aside in his Holy Spirit tangent. I want to kind of spend a few minutes there and camp out in verses uh, 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles there, uh, it'll be on, your on the screen there behind me if you don't uh, have a Bible. This is Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Paul says, when I think of all this, that is all that he's been saying in the first two chapters. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. And then in the NLT it has a, the little ellipsis, the little three dots indicating this sort of, this, this is the break in thought. For the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. 
Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, three weeks ago, I had made the point, referring to Paul, when he, when he says, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, that it pointed to, whenever he said this, it pointed to the reality that every dimension of, of his life had been yielded to and surrendered to the control of God. He was, a, he was captive to Jesus. So as the Lord spoke, Paul obeyed. He was bound to the Lord and the things the Lord would tell him to do. But he was also, he was also an actual prisoner. So we don't want to so make it metaphorical and so symbolic that we miss the reality that Paul was writing this letter and other letters like it in chains. As he wrote from Rome, in verse 1 of this passage, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, yes, bound to the Lord, captive to his commands, but I'm also a prisoner here for the benefit of you. I'm here because of my ministry to you Gentiles. Now, if you wanted to trace sort of the, the sequence of events that resulted in Paul going from one who was traveling all around sort of the known world and, and, and doing this amazing gospel work and on, on the, the very you know, tip of the spear of, of Christian mission in the world, what, what took him from there to being chained and on, in house arrest, you can follow that sequence of events in the book of Acts. Going back to Acts chapter 21, Paul's in Caesarea, and a prophet named Agabus comes and by the Holy Spirit preaches or proclaims this message, this prophecy that says, essentially, you know, when you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound by the Jews. You will be basically put under arrest. And Paul, uh, responding to the believers there in Caesarea who were urging him not to go back to, to Jerusalem, they knew his plan was to go there. They didn't want that to happen to him. He says to them, listen, uh, verse 13 of chapter 21, I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord. So there was no convincing him otherwise. And sure enough, a short time later, as he is in Jerusalem and he's giving a report of his mission to the Gentiles and the way the Gentiles are responding and the, and the good work that God is doing as a result of his gospel ministry, he finds himself in the temple and a mob, we're told, of Jews who were visiting from the province of Asia, which is one of the areas that he had previously been preaching. They, they were probably ones who were in one of the synagogues where Paul would go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews, and then when he was basically rejected there, he would go out and he would preach to the Gentiles. It was probably a group of those folks from somewhere along the line who, who took issue with Paul and what he was preaching and, and, the, and the result of, of his ministry. They, they, they found him in, in Jerusalem and they, they, they stirred up a mob and they even provoked the whole city to turn against him and his ministry and to the point where he was put under arrest, just like Agabus had prophesied. They had even sworn oaths that they would not rest until he was dead. That was how determined they were to silence him and his message. And the only thing that spared Paul's life, the only thing that prevented these people from carrying out their oaths is ultimately his appeal for his case to be heard by Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so you ask this question, Paul, you had this tremendous ministry going. You, you, the Lord is using you all around the known world. God is doing great work, not only among his people in Jerusalem, but in, in those in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as we're told in Acts. Even the Gentiles are, are discovering life in Christ. Why, why did you go back there? Why did you allow this to happen to you? Well, Paul was convinced that his ministry to the Gentile world was worth it. Paul was willing to put it all on the line for this message that in Christ, God is creating 
one new multicultural human society, which is his family on earth in the temple in which he dwells. Paul's message was that Christ's work had abolished all barriers, barriers between God and man, but also barriers between us and one and, and, and others. Now this message, Paul says here in our passage here, was a revelation. That is something that he had received directly from God. Look again at verse 3. He says, God himself revealed this mysterious plan to me. Now when you hear the word mystery, you have your sort of own, your own your modern American sort of concepts of what a, a mystery is. And I, and I just want to tell you from the get-go here that when Paul says mysterious, he's not referring to some secret knowledge that, that is reserved for the spiritual elite, right? So you have, you have Christians, they have sort of like this common uh, awareness and understanding of things, but then you have Paul's mysterious secret knowledge. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about something that is, you know, some sort of esoteric mystery reserved for the holy club. No, this is, this is truth that, is, that has been hidden by God from human knowledge or understanding until he's ready to reveal it. And when he reveals it, it's not just to the, the secret group. That's Gnosticism. That's something that has always been roundly condemned and refuted by the church from the time of the New Testament until today. We don't believe that God reveals secret knowledge just to a special few. We believe that God has openly revealed his mysteries, and they belong to the whole church. You and me, all of us here together. This mystery, verse 4, is that which pertains to Christ. The mystery of Jesus. Something that it was, we're told, hidden from previous generations, but now has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. Now it's true, as, as you are, I know you're all good Old Testament students, you and I both know that in the Old Testament that, that God revealed that there was a plan for Gentiles. They weren't absent from the discussion or from the conversation. No, in, instead you can go all the way back even to the time of, of Abraham and see that from, from the beginning of the formation of this people that would come to be called Israel, even then God had a purpose in mind as it pertains to the whole world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as God is calling Abraham to himself, and he's, he's swearing a, a, a covenant, he's, for, he's establishing a, a covenant with Abraham, his promise is what? Is that through, your, through you, Abraham, and your family and your descendants, I will bring blessing to all the nations. God had a, a global, thank you, Heather, for sharing the, the missions moment when you did. God has always had a global vision in mind for his purposes in the world. It's never been just for one small group of people. It's for all, all the nations. In Psalm chapter 2, it says that the Messiah is a promise of inheritance for the nations. Not just a nation, but for all the nations. It's a promise of an inheritance from God. I, Isaiah, which by the way, uh, Richard Misservi is going to be teaching from Isaiah here, uh, I believe beginning in September on Wednesday nights. That's going to be a tremendous Bible study. If you want to come out and check that out, I don't know how he's going to manage to get through 66 chapters uh, anytime this century. Uh, if it, if it, it would take me probably 100 years to get through that many uh, chapters of, a, of, a, uh, of Scripture, but he's going to do it somehow. I know he can. The Holy Spirit's going to help him. I invite you out to that here. You'll hear more about, more about that in the coming weeks. But all throughout Isaiah, and for those of you who come to the study and dive into those, those uh, passages together, you'll see in Isaiah that, that, there, that there's this sense that Israel was meant to be always a light to the nations, a, an illuminating revealing people who make known to the world, not just to themselves, but to those not like themselves, who God is and what he was like, and that one day the nations would flow to Jerusalem like a river. So yes, in the Old Testament you can find God's perspective on, on all the nations and God's plans and purposes as it pertains to them, but what was hidden in the Old Testament and has been now revealed through the Holy Spirit by the work of, in person of Christ, what has been revealed through Paul and in the scriptures, and now to you and to me, was the radical nature of this plan. Yes, God had plans for the Gentiles, but we didn't know it was going to be like this. That God would form a new community 
called the church. People from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every color and every class from every part of the world to be organically united to his son and to one another as the body. Just mind-blowing reality that all believers in all places at all times would be incorporated equally and become part of one another. A complete union without barriers of any kind. Verse 6, this is God's plan. This is what God has kept hidden. This is the mystery that he has withheld from all the world until now. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. I sort of regret how the NLT renders verse 6. It's not it, it's maybe not the best. I think it's clear. It's, I, I love the NLT. Uh, I'll continue to, to read from that publicly and preach from it. Um, but it's, it's not perfect. There's no perfect, perfect translation. There's, there's different translations for different times and places. And, and sometimes others are stronger than, than, than this one. And, and one of the things that's slightly missing here in verse 6 is just this, this um, these parallel expressions that you find in the original language. These, these three expressions in one verse that all have the exact same Greek prefix. It's really interesting if, if you're familiar at all with the original language or you have a book of someone who's familiar with it and you're able to read and kind of see what's going on in the way Paul f- uh, phrased this, these lines, you see that he did something to make a point. Three expressions with the exact same Greek prefix to, to, to emphasize what he's trying to say. And that prefix is the prefix syn, S-Y-N in English. You know it from, like, you know, synonymous, right? Or um, synergy. It's the idea of, of two things being together. It's a togetherness prefix. And so in the, in the Greek, you have these three phrases with the exact same prefix. In the first, we, we translate co-heirs. Co-heirs. In other words, in Christ, all the eternal riches of God are theirs, as in Jew and Gentile, jointly. If, if God has something that he's giving to his people that they are to receive as his children and enjoy forever, it's not just for one group, it is for all groups. We are co-heirs. And the Holy Spirit is the, is the pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the foretaste of eternity today. God has held nothing back in in emptying the storehouses of of heaven's riches through his son by his spirit. And whether you are a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person, if you are in Christ, you are an heir to that. It's beautiful, but it's not the only presence of that prefix there. We're not only co-heirs together, we are concorporate together. In other words, we are fellow members of the same body. And I'm told there was a Sunday school class just this morning that was in Romans chapter 12, I believe, talking about being the body of Christ, being fitted together. And we're going to come back to this idea a few weeks uh, from now as we continue this sermon series. But what's amazing to me is we're looking at the flow of Paul's thought and we're thinking about sort of the historical context in which he's writing this. He's talking about peoples who were once far off from one another. Not just geographically, in fact, not even geographically in in many cases, but people who were separate in every possible way, people who had been cut off from each other completely in every way imaginable. And Paul's saying these people would be united, members of one whole, complete body. It is a radical notion that only God could make possible. It's so much more than, than whatever Old Testament, Old Testament imagination anyone had of, you know, yes, so, so the nations will stream to Jerusalem. Great. Um, everyone's going to worship one God. Wonderful. We will occupy the same space. Tremendous. 
We want Jerusalem to be the center of the world. We believe that that's where God has you know, made his presence and his, and his, his himself known. And so naturally we want the nations to come here. Wonderful. But the, the, that, that imagination is, a far, is far short of the reality. That it's not just people streaming together to occupy the same space. It is literally two peoples becoming one people. That's a very different thing indeed. Next week, I'm going to be preaching on, on the, the view of membership of church as belonging to one another. When you belong to someone, you don't just sit in the same physical space as that person. There's something about your life and their life that gets intertwined. There's a transference of my life to you and your life to me. Something is happening in what we call membership. When you belong to a people, and a people belong to you. And Paul's talking about this here. They're not just going to be physically sitting in the same room together. Their lives, our lives in Christ, are interwoven. My heart is permeable. Your heart is porous. Somehow I'm in you, and you are in me, and together we are in him. We are con-corporate together, a radical, barrier-crushing reality. And lastly, we're co-heirs, we're con-corporate together, and Paul says we are also co-sharers, co-sharers. In other words, fellow partakers of the same promise of blessings. In other words, it's not just a matter of inheritance. It's not just a matter of being part of the same body. Everything in Christ that is being made available to mankind, we share together equally. At the foot of the cross, there is no distinction between all the things that you and I make distinctions between ourselves. Because we see people in the world that, that look differently than we do. Or come from a different background than, than you and I come from. Or even speak a different language. Man, that, uh, for those of you who were delegates at the general conference, uh, not last week, but the week before, and uh, the, the, the international service that we had, um, it, it was beautiful. We had a, an array of people from all different parts of the world up front on the platform, and, and it wasn't done perfectly, and it shouldn't have been done perfectly, because nothing should be done perfectly, because we're not perfect people. There's always going to be mishaps and mistakes and whatever. It's never perfect. So it was imperfect, and it was kind of distracting because everyone on the platform was singing in a different language at the exact same time. Listen, it was my poor brain just died a little. I couldn't follow along in my mind, but man, my heart, there's something beautiful. I know, I know it touched the heart of God. There's something beautiful about that. Yeah, they're different languages. It's not perfect. We all have different skin colors and come from different backgrounds, and it's, none of us have anything to do with each other except Jesus. Man, there was something special about that moment. The Spirit was present, because that's what he's doing. He's offering himself to all the world equally at once. And you and I are co-sharers of everything that God makes available in Christ. And it is only made available in Christ. That's the, he says that multiple times throughout the text here. It's only through Jesus. It's only through him. It's only through union with Christ by faith that anyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Rich or poor, anyone becomes co-anything. You're not an heir. You're not a part of the body. You don't enjoy the, the blessings in Jesus unless you are in Jesus. So it's all of this is found in him. Jesus is the one in whom all of this is made possible. And this is the mystery that Paul has been in, entrusted with revealing to the world and to, and to you and to me through the scriptures. It is a double union. A double union. A union with God and a union with one another. Paul says in verse 3, it was revealed to him by God himself. In verse 5, he says, it was revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and to the prophets. So that, verse 10, what? So that God could use the church. This is the purpose of the revelation. This is the purpose behind disclosing this truth 
through Paul and the, the apostles and the prophets. This is the point. So that God could use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. That expression, rich variety, in the, old, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, is the exact same word that describes the coat that Jacob gave his son Joseph. The exact same word. So you're almost picturing this, this beautiful tapestry of wisdom that God is putting on display for all the world to see where? Right here. Right here. The purpose of the mystery. The essence of it. The, the, the reality of it, working itself out in space and time, is the people called the church. A parallel passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 says this. This message, again, he's talking about the exact same thing. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. But now, but now, it has been revealed where? He says, to God's people. In other words, this mystery is the common possession of the universal church. It has been entrusted to you and to me. The, the secret plan and purpose and dreams of God from before the, the history of the world, the things that he had in his mind as he spoke everything into existence, he has entrusted all of that to us. You and I are caretakers of God's own imagination. You and I are stewards of his mystery. Which means not only you and I have this inherent responsibility of, of preaching and sharing and disclosing it to others, you and I have this this urgent necessity to embody it. It's not just something we talk about. It's something that we are and something that we do. You see, the good news of, of double reconciliation between God and man and us with one another, this double union message, is not something that is just proclaimed on a mission field or at the, you know, the tip of the spears as, as the gospel is spreading in the world. It's not just something we talk about at you know, revivals and tent meetings and things like that. No, it's something that happens right here on Sunday morning. It's something that happens on Wednesday nights when we come and we do our churchy things here at, at campus. It's happening in our life groups as we gather together in our homes and in places of fellowship. It's wherever the body of Christ comes together in the name of Jesus. And you cannot miss that coming together dimension of it. Because it, it is in the corporate gathering of God's people where the message of people being reconciled to one another is enfleshed. You can go and talk about it all day, and you have to talk about it, and the world needs to hear it from your lips, but they need to see it in your life. You allowing your life to be intertwined with another. Not just an isolated family group that shows up and sits in a room and then leaves before the closing prayer is finished being prayed. No, people who come in and say, I don't have it all together. I don't know you very well. I kind of don't even want to be known by you very much. But you know what? I know that this is what it means to be the people of God. I will enter into your life and I'll let you into mine. Because we're co-heirs together. We are Concorporate. <laughs> we are co sharers of everything God is doing in the world. And it is right here where that is, where it takes on flesh. It's not just an idea, it's not just a message, it is a people. Church not only has to preach it, the church has to embody it. And I want you to remember that. These realities, the next time you sing a congregational song, we don't just sing because we like music. And we do like music. And we love the music that we get on Sunday mornings. A lot of people pick a church because they like the music. And it's okay to like music. But that's not theologically why we sing. Yes, we sing because God is worthy of our praise and he's wired us and enabled us to, to, to worship him in a whole variety of ways. One of them being through, through the giving of, of, our, of songs of praise. But have you ever noticed that when you sing and someone is singing next to you, and a few people are singing here, that you have this beautiful 
well, I'll use the word tapestry again, but a tapestry of sound and all these melodies and all these notes and harmonies come together and it forms almost a single voice, but it's so much more. It's something beautiful. What's happening when we sing? It is a, a, an auditory expression of the body of Christ. People who are not just fitted together in one way, but in many ways, including the offering of our voices together. They come together in one harmonious song. It's beautiful. And, and it's great for people like me who, who maybe don't sing as, as well as others. I love that my voice, it's a, it contributes, but it's not dominant. I don't want everyone to hear just me singing. I want to hear you singing, and you singing, and us singing. And I reject any type of, of worship expression where it's a performance on a stage, where it's, it's people who are expert musicians who are performing. Uh, concerts are great, but let's not call it worship. Let's call it a concert. We don't want a concert. Jeff is not here to sing a sing a concert and lead a concert. Jeff is here to guide you and me into worship together. It's not just his voice. It's our voices. It's a beautiful expression of life together in Christ. So remember that next time you sing a song together. Remember that here in a few moments when we come up here and receive communion together. Remember that when you go to the next potluck or the kickball game, dangerous or safe, what is happening in these things? They're not just churchy activities to keep you out of trouble or to give you something to do. They are visible, active, intentional expressions of the mystery of God entrusted to us. Let that sink down deep into your mind and into your heart. Let that give deep purpose and meaning and substance behind and beneath Everything you do when you come here on Sunday morning and every moment in between. I want you to tell these things to the next person in your life that you come across who calls himself a Christian but says, whether with their words or just by how they live, that they don't really need church. Man, I have a hard time understanding those two things. Those two things do not belong in the same sentence together. I am a Christian. I don't need church. I am a Christian. Church is optional. I don't think it's optional in the mind of God. It's not just me and Jesus. That's one of the pitfalls of, of, of our own beloved evangelical tradition that emphasizes the necessity of a new birth experience and a personal relationship with Jesus, which are things we cherish and will never let go of those things. Those are biblical, they're important, and they're necessary. But your salvation is not just me and Jesus. It is we and Jesus, always. Always. So remind them that these people who, who view it as optional, remind them that it is in the church where the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages in the mind and heart of God from eternity past, has been entrusted. It is here where it is experienced in all of its fullness and rich array. You and I together, <laughs> yes, even us, this wonderfully imperfect ragtag group of some of you are misfit well we're all misfits aren't we no one here has it all together we've all messed up and have our things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed of and we've missed the mark and dropped the ball and we've we've flubbed it up every every single one of us here has a history like that to some degree or another but even you and I right here this morning this group of people from all over the place with different backgrounds and personalities and perspectives, this body of believers with Christ as our head is what Paul says in verse 11 was God's eternal plan. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That from eternity past before God breathed a word of anything into existence, he saw this. This. You and I right here this morning. It's part, this was his eternal plan. And so the question, by necessity, becomes how important is it to you and to me? Now I know this might sound a little bit like sort of the cliche pastoral guilt trip, right? Oh, you know, this, this is coming from the guy who lives in the parking lot. It's easy for him to talk this way because he never leaves. You know, the guy in the parking lot 
whose very job depends on everybody doing what he's talking about this morning. Of course he's going to say these things. Listen, there are preachers who, who, have some, who will have a beef with their congregations, and they'll go and they'll, they'll look through the scriptures to try to find passages that will back up their beef. I promise you that's not my heart. All right? There's a far cry from searching for a passage that sort of backs up your beef. There's a far cry from that. And, and what, I'm, what I feel I'm trying to do here this morning, that is preaching out of convictions that emerge from the truth of God's word. This is not Pastor Sean's view of the church. I believe this is God's view of the church revealed to us through his apostle, and you and I have it today in his word. And if I'm wrong, you're welcome to come correct me. I open myself to it. So I get it. It sounds a little like the cliche sort of pastor guilt trip. But my, I promise you my heart here this morning is only ever to just challenge you and myself on this, what I started with talking about an anniversary. I know we're a number of months past the two-year anniversary. But in light of that former anniversary, I, I want to challenge us to just take time to assess how important church is to you because of how the scriptures affirm how important church is to him. Not to me. Don't assess how important church is to you in comparison to me, but in comparison to him. That's the standard by which I want you to judge your own attitude and your own perspective and your own commitment and sense of a purpose when it comes to being a Christian as a part of a church. Jesus died to create this. He didn't die just to save random individuals. He died to create a body. Paul suffered, was imprisoned, and eventually was crucified not crucified, <laughs> executed. Peter was crucified. Paul was not crucified. He was executed. Every single pain and misery he experienced in life was for this. I'm a slave to Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner of the Lord for you. Millions around the world right now or within, maybe they're on the other side of the world so a few hours ago or coming up in a few hours as it were, would they're, they're suffering and they're persecuted for this. So what will we sacrifice for it? How important is it to you and to me? To what lengths will we go to be the caretakers of the mystery? To live it out? To put a face to put on flesh, to make it not just a priority in life, but perhaps the priority in life. Look, I'm not telling you to move here. <laughs> Listen, there's, there's room at the cross for you, but there's not room in the parsonage for you, I'm sorry. This is not an invitation or an exhortation to come live at the church. <laughs> it's not at all what I'm saying. I get it. We all have lives, we all have commitments, we all have responsibilities. It's very easy for, for people to feel like all the thing, you have to be at all the things at the church and do all the things, and then suddenly your life is so consumed, you're exhausted, and your family life starts to deteriorate, and that's the last thing in the world I would ever imagine or want from anybody. What I am asking you is to, is to assess and reflect at the very core of your heart, the very center of your life, the very essence of your person, in the center of your family, your identity, who you are and what your life is all about, where does this fit? Where does it fit? Where do missions conference fit, conferences fit? Where do potlucks and Bible studies and kickball games and ministry fairs and all the other things we're doing, where do they fit in your life? I, I'm afraid that for many Christians, church fits somewhere near the margins. You know, it's the thing we do when we, when we have the time to do it. 
It's, it's the stuff we do, you know, when, we're, when we need something. I've got this crisis in my life. I better get to church. It's, it's the thing we do when we're perhaps feeling guilty or feeling bad or we need a pick-me-up or a blessing of some kind. But the moment we don't have time or the moment that it's inconvenient, when things get busy or hard or when we're just feeling lazy, boy, we're just itching for a reason not to go, aren't we? I've been guilty of it before. I know the feeling. Maybe you knew that the person preaching this week wasn't the pastor. (laughs) You know the attendance always drops on Sundays where I'm not preaching. And I know it's not because I'm such a great preacher. I know it's not. It's like we, we're just waiting for an excuse to take a, a week off. I get it. There's reasons for weeks off. I'm not criticizing people for taking a week off. I get it. But what's the attitude in the heart? Where does it fit? Where does church fit? Where does church fit when we know that there's a live stream to watch? And that's not to say anything to the folks who are watching from the live stream. It's, it's there for you. But what's your heart? Are you there because you can't get out? Well, I'm glad we have it for you. But are you there because you didn't feel like getting out of your pajamas this morning? Well, maybe God has more in mind for you. I want you to assess and think about your heart. Think about where these things fit. I just wonder if, if this, this issue we're facing in America where two-thirds of the church have come back and a third we may never see again, I just wonder, does that align with what Jesus' dreams and visions and hopes are for his people? The church is not a building where saved individuals come to worship each week. The church is the visible manifestation of the invisible reality of what God is doing in the world. It is central to his plans and his purposes for all of creation. The riches and the blessings and the promises of Christ are available and experienced to the fullest and made known to the world right here. And I want to challenge you not to miss it. Don't miss it. Not a second of it. Don't sacrifice what God is doing here on the altars of busyness or laziness. Don't exchange the beauty and the wonder and the riches of God in Christ in his people for the lesser promises of the world. That's a terrible exchange. It is not worth it. Never, there's not one time in your life where you exchange what's happening here for the lesser promises of the world where you come out on top. The world cannot offer what God is doing in his people, in his church. It is central to all of history. It is central to all of Christian living. It is central to the very gospel message itself. Look one more time at verse 7. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading what? Can we have verse 7 on the screen? By spreading what? What good news? Say it again. This good news, what is the good news he's talking about? It's not just Jesus died for you to take away your sins. He hasn't said that once in this passage. What is this good news? Oh, that we are co-heirs together. We are con-corporate together. We are co-sharers together in Christ. All oh, that's the good news. Not just that Jesus died to save you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to save me. But that Jesus died to create we. Paul says, it's my honor and my privilege, the least of everybody. And he says that there. The most undeserving of all of God's people He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. That's the good news. The church is at the heart of it. Double union with God and with one another. And so with that in mind, I call you to embrace God's vision of the church as a new humanity. His family, his dwelling place, his instrument in the world. And commit to pray and work and even suffer 
whatever it costs, Paul gave his life for it, whatever it costs to turn this vision into a reality. And friends, nowhere is this commitment expressed more vividly and poignantly than what we're about to do here in a minute. So I'm going to, here in just a moment, invite those who are helping to come and help with uh, communion. But I first want to pray. Lord, thank you that in your mind from ages past, you had this moment in mind. You were thinking about us. Not that we are the center of all things. Christ is the center of all things. But Christ is the head of a body. And as we are joined to him, as we are united to him, we find ourselves smack dab right in the center of all that you are doing in the world. Everything you are doing in the world, everything that matters, everything that has eternal significance has the church at the heart of it. Lord, help us to see things from that vantage point. Forgive us for the ways that we have been lazy or apathetic, where we haven't cared. Lord, forgive us just for our ignorance. Perhaps this is the first time some people here today have ever thought of church from these, these, in this way. Lord, we repent of all of our failures. We confess that our lives are so saturated with busyness and other commitments and obligations and responsibilities, and sometimes we literally just can't be here, and we know there's grace for that. There's no one taking attendance here on Sunday. There's no one here keeping track of who's showing up and who's not, and they're going to get a phone call if they miss three in a row because they've been bad. There's nothing like that at all, Lord. Keep us from that. But Lord, help us to assess in our hearts our attitude towards your people and towards life in the church, life as part of a body. We don't want to be part of the, that one-third statistics for a second, Lord. We want to be fully engaged in all that you're doing here in our midst, and we give you thanks and praise for it. What a joy to be together as the people of God. Oh, I see you at work here. Yes, you're at work in our lives individually, but oh, it's so beautiful to see it in its corporate beauty where the, the rich tapestry of your wisdom is put on display, where you showcase it, not just for all the world, but for the unseen rulers and principalities in the heavenlies. Lord, all of created reality gets to see the fullness of, of what you are doing in the world through us together. We over me. Lord, may that be the anthem of our hearts as we continue our worship in this time of communion. Lord, we, we offer it and ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.